This week, Taking Issue hits the campaign trail. We'll preview the third GOP primary debate eulogize former VP Pence's failed presidential campaign and the Healy administration wins in court, but will capping the number of migrants sheltered in Massachusetts help ease the strain of the crisis? I'm Sue. I'm Corey. And I'm Matt. And this is Taking Issue. Our nation was born here, not with a whimper, but with the spark of revolution. One more indictment, and this election is closed out. That's what democracy is. It's a choice of the people, by the people, and for the people. Welcome, everybody, to another thrilling episode of Taking Issue alongside at issue host Corey Smith, who is just coming off of a fantastic win of his Texas Rangers. Yes, yes. Just like he played himself. World Series. I know. <laughs> exactly. Very exciting. I feel like I played. As well as Sue O'Connell, t- at issue host and also political commentator here at NBC 10. Guys, it's been a really, really busy week. Oh, my gosh. Slightly. Slightly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Ever so slightly. Especially up in New Hampshire, just to our north, as we're talking about this presidential campaign season really starting to heat up the third GOP debate coming up next week in Miami which will be Governor Ron DeSantis's home state be hosting for that but a few less people on the stage as well and hopefully that'll help kind of cut through the uh, fat well they didn't really say much when they were on the ones that aren't making it I can't no. even remember who exactly was on and some no. of the people who got cut never made it to the stage yeah. so the question I think is you know what did they do with Vivek does Vivek continue to sort of plow his way through the conversation? Um, you know, Nikki Haley is in an interesting position because of the crisis internationally. Uh, she sort of brings the most experience to the stage uh, in terms of being, you know, now that Pence is gone, which we'll get to. But really, be she might be able to really get some traction. Still a race for second place, though, right? Yeah. I mean, at this point. Yeah, I mean, well, that is what we've been talking about. In Iowa, polling is showing that Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis are now tied. DeSantis's polling numbers coming down. Haley's polling numbers going up. And then in New Hampshire right now, I believe Nikki Haley's up on DeSantis because he didn't spend a whole lot of time right. there, really. We've seen him start to cut ruts through that state again. We'll wait and see if New Hampshire voters resonate with that. But you guys know I've spent a ton of time up there. And voters had said that they felt like he should have been here more. I mean, that's what matters to Granite State voters, that retail politics, hanging out at the diners and the airports and all that sort of stuff. And he just wasn't doing that uh, in the beginning. And so hopefully now maybe it'll have an impact. I'm curious, you guys have both you know, been doing this for a long time. What is the calculus when it comes to do I spend time in Iowa compared to do I spend time in New Hampshire? What is... Do you know what those inner machinations of a campaign are going to be as they decide where to A, put their money, but also B, put their candidate? Well, I think, you know, it's interesting. Some, some of the, the, the candidates who have won Iowa or won New Hampshire haven't gone on to win the presidency. Uh, it hasn't really met, meant much in that way, but it does give you a lot of coverage. It does help you to become a better campaigner. The only concern I have about South Carolina going before New Hampshire and and obviously before Iowa is that some candidates in the future are not going to be really ready for prime time and they're going to go right into this big, big state. I mean, would Barack Obama have done as well in South Carolina if he hadn't honed his skills in Iowa? Same with Jimmy Carter. There's a whole bunch of people who turned out. I mean, there might be another option, but it's a big stake. No, I agree agree with you uh, in terms of what New Hampshire allows candidates to do it kind of you know separates those who can and those who cannot but I would say you know to your question that you know would Obama have won South Carolina before Iowa or New Hampshire I think back to what 20 was just 2020 what if uh, Kamala Harris and Cory Booker 
are still in the race before South Carolina, how does the calculus change then and there? Are we still talking about a President Biden or just given what had happened shortly after George Floyd, had they stuck it out and actually gone to a state like South Carolina, could they have gained more traction? I, 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 still, I still find it highly fascinating uh, what the DNC is doing. Uh, I will say selfishly, and I think I speak for all three of us, pick a date, please, <laughs> yeah, please so please. we can figure out how long we're going to be away from our families for that, for that week, because we have a, a bunch of great coverage coming up. Uh, we just don't know exactly when we're going to have to go to New Hampshire every single day. Um, but that's that, that's far, far down the road. Are you packed yet? Uh, basically, right. yeah, yeah, ready, to, ready go. to go. I mean, for those that don't know, my wife's pregnant, so we're having a baby. So I'm going to go. I'm going to hang out with my newborn, and then it's going to be getting on a plane to Iowa for the caucus, and then right back here for New Hampshire, South Carolina after that. So and next week you're in Miami. It's all, and next week we're in Miami for the debate, for the third GOP debate, which really I think is going to be an interesting one just because there are going to be fewer candidates on the stage. We're going to talk more about Mike Pence in a second, but I did get a chance to speak with Ron DeSantis one-on-one -on -one up in New Hampshire this week, talk with him about the debate itself, and if it matters to have less people on the stage, here's what he had to say. A hundred percent. I mean, the reality is when you have seven or eight people up there, it's kind of like back and forth and like the cross talk and somebody's like, I'm in the middle of this. I'm like looking around. It's like, and I'm like, guys, so I think if you have four or five candidates, I think that's going to allow you over two hour period to have more time to address the issues. So you can hear him say there that there will just be more substance and ability to have better conversations and get down to the actual issues. I mean, many times he feels like he's just kind of caught between two candidates shouting at one another and he doesn't get a chance to really get into the, you know, basis of his argument. Yeah, but I, I feel like some of that, some of that stuff is just kind of an excuse. It's usually when they're, when they're just talking over each other, what stands out, it's like the zinger, it's the, the super pack puppet, or I feel dumber for having listened to everything that you just said. Um, I don't know how much, substance there is really going to be because one our, our, our voters in those early primary states at least those who are willing to tune into a debate tuning in f to it for substance or are they just seeing is my guy throwing punches or taking punches yeah um and i think just like we saw in that second debate as soon as vivek ramaswamy sort of hit his hit his highs uh after the first debate everybody went after him in the second debate now look where he's at i think this comes down to desantis versus haley we're already seeing some of it in the uh, campaign ads there that they're running against one another. This whole China debate, mm -hmm. um, I think, is going to be very interesting in Miami because, and it's 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 a well done ad by the DeSantis campaign. You know, here you have Nikki Haley saying that she wants to put China into the ash heap of history. Yet there's clips of her welcoming China to her state to do business. Um, so it'll be it'll be interesting to see those who go at it because again, I just I just feel like this is just the the race for second place. Yeah, but it's also the race for, for campaign funds. It's a, yeah. for fundraising, right? So this is this is what you get from Iowa and New Hampshire and these, and no matter what year it is, some of these debates where there's so many people on the stage that the big donors and some of the small donors are looking to see if you have what's if you have it in you to keep going, and that's why we see people drop out right after. And you've spoken to these folks a lot. Do you get a sense that anybody is gaining in confidence because i think some of that comes from just getting out there and meeting the voters and talking to them and getting momentum yeah. over the, between the second debate and now have you seen anybody out there on the trail really kind of 
come into themselves and, and grow in confidence? Well, I mean, maybe this it's sort of a yes and a no. Is like with Chris Christie in particular, it just feels like when he's out on the campaign trail in a diner or in a town hall, he's at home and he feels at home when he's there. So he's gaining a lot of confidence and feels like he still has a corner of this race uh, to be holding out. But then you have other candidates like a like a Doug Burgum or an Asa Hutchinson, where it's like you can kind of feel the waning moments of their campaign, Why you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, though, I mean, he comes and sits down, either of them, you know, at the table to talk with the New Hampshire press and then the national media after that. And it's like, we're just kind of going through the motions here. Like, we know you got to be here, you got to file, you got to put on a good show, but we all know that you're probably, who knows, but you're probably not going to be the next president of the United States. So, we'll see. So you met Ron DeSantis recently, yeah. as we just heard, and of course everyone was talking about his shoes and yes. how tall he is. Speaking and, of substance. Speaking of substance, I just want to point out that for someone who uh, passed laws in his state against um, drag queens and about uh, denying uh, gender-affirming care to trans kids, I don't think there's anything more gender-affirming than the allegation that he's wearing uh, lifts in his boots of some sort to make him appear taller. Or also, you might argue it could be drag, because if he is indeed wearing heels, uh, that's what it would be. So the hypocrisy, as someone who is like one rainstorm away from looking like Rudy Giuliani, <laughs> I just want to say uh, the, you know, the hypocrisy of what might be happening is what strikes but me. Doesn't doesn't that kind of get to the core of the DeSantis, I guess, campaign problem? You're not talking about his policies. Mm -hmm. You're not talking about the work that he's been doing in Florida. It's like, dude, they're talking about your boots. Like, if they're, if you're, if you're answering questions about your boots, you're losing. And this right? has been a consistent problem with his campaign that we always end up there's some flashy thing that's a sort of self-inflicted wound that we all go to to talk about because we can't not talk about it because it's you know it's the flavor of the campaign trail. If you well, know. and let me say this too is like we were at his town hall yesterday and it was probably an hour and a half long. He brought his Surgeon General up from Florida, and the entire thing was about COVID. The entire thing was about vaccines and masks and all of that, those sort of things. And I'm like, are we running this campaign in 2020 or are we running it for 2024? Because it sure sounds like you're running for president in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, which of course, a lot of those things are still present and they're still serious and they're all those things. But it's like, why is that the issue we're talking about? There's so many other big issues you could or, be Or tell a compelling story about what you did as governor. I mean, governors are best positioned to be president in presidential campaigns because they have a story to tell. They have management experience of their state. So if you agree that Ron DeSantis is doing and did do a great job as governor, then he should be able to tell his story of without bringing up the, the Surgeon General to yeah. yibber yabber away. Who, who himself has some... Um, Let's say um, takes a lot of freedom, I guess. Yes, with, with the science of with, with the science of I mean, COVID. And a lot of the times, you know, most of the questions in the audience, which actually kind of surprised me, were on that sort of health-related track, and it was like the question automatically had to be deferred to the Surgeon General mm -hmm. because he's the authority on the stage. Um, and Ron DeSantis is, you know, standing there. He'll chime in, but but that's about it. You know? When you when you spoke to him, did you get a sense that here's a guy who realizes that? his window may be closing no. in terms of, of, of actually making some headway against Trump? No, I, I, didn't, I didn't get that at all from him. In fact, I thought there was sort of, sort of a defiant confidence about him mm -hmm. as, as he was talking to me, basically saying I wouldn't trade my position for any position, any other candidate. Um, this was the plan all along, and voters aren't going to decide until January. 
we're fine, we're good, we're continuing on the track that we're on. Yet Nikki Haley has positioned herself already taking shots at Trump, saying basically he's going to be too busy in 2024 to be president mm -hmm. and to run for president, that these are the challenges that uh, we need to go forward and not go backwards. So she's actually starting to take aim not just at Trump policies, but at Trump. And DeSantis, you know, he's always been the kind of person to inch forward a little bit on that, but he still hasn't fully gone in. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see them balance that, that line between I need to go after my opponent on the stage, yeah. but knowing the big boss waiting in the wings isn't here, but I also need to go at him, but he's not here, so do I just go at the people on, on stage? It's, it's a weird dichotomy. I don't, I don't envy, envy any of their positions. Um, but no one forced them to be. I wonder know, too, though, why like a Chris Christie hasn't gained any steam, considering he's been doing that from the very beginning. That's what his whole campaign. I talk to people who so don't like him. Yeah. I mean, I talk to people who would vote for him that just can't see him as um, someone who they want to have as their president. Mm -hmm. And you know, these. Who, who do you feel is the most likable? I think Nikki Haley is actually the best. I, I think in another universe. Hillary Clinton's finishing her second term, and Nikki Haley is in, in a position to become the next president, next the second female president of the United States, first Republican. She is, you know, she is everything that her resume says she is. You know, a governor, uh, very well educated, very well spoken, an ambassador, a command of the issues, which she has occasionally shown on stage, and someone who I think um, has has answered the questions reasonably. That you know, if, if you are, uh, you know, definitely for broader access for abortion, um, uh, you may not be for. But if you are some of the people who are somewhat in the middle, like, well, I don't know if it's always the case. You, and you're a Democrat or an independent, you could vote for her. But those answers yeah. she gives anger the right, uh, and the, I, so I think there's a needle for her to thread there. She's still giving me to this day, I think, which is the best answer, and it was on that abortion question because. All the, you hear all these, these candidates talk, and we know the only thing that matters in Congress is math, is the numbers. Mm -hmm. Do you have the numbers on your side? Mm -hmm. And I, the, the answer that she gave was, I, you know, I can, I can, I can say I'm for a, a national ban, but we don't have the numbers in Congress to do it. So it's really just kind of a waste of time talking about it. Maybe there is some compromise to, to where we can get the numbers on our side. But I think that was the realest answer I have heard any sort of candidate yep. give when it comes to just the brass taxes is, do you have the math on your side? Um, and I guess in hindsight, it's, it's, it's somewhat odd hearing a GOP politician talk about having the math on their side when we just saw them go through the speaker fight <laughs> and not, not knowing how to add up numbers. But, but again, just, just one of the many fascinating things that, that we'll be watching. I'm sure you'll, you'll have a front row seat to it in my yeah. as well. Yeah, well, and one last thought on Nikki Haley is that she's, in she's accomplished the impossible, which is a, a Trump uh, administration you know, appointee who doesn't really have to talk about it very much. People have kind of moved past that. She was the former UN ambassador and people say that, but she doesn't have the ties to Trump that some of the other candidates have had to deal no. with. No. Anyways, back to my conversation with Ron DeSantis, specifically about Massachusetts. I asked him about the migrant housing crisis here and also his decision to send migrants to Martha's Vineyard. You all remember that. Take a listen to what he had to say. You just can't operate a country like this. There's not enough room and resources to have millions of people pouring in. You sent those migrants to Martha's Vineyard. A lot of people called that a political stunt in Massachusetts, but do you think it had the desired effect? It definitely had the effect. That, that put this on the map in ways that, that no one thought possible. 
Um, you know, it was uh, obviously Martha's Vineyard had, uh, had said they were sanctuary. They didn't necessarily want to follow through with that. Uh, but I think it got a lot of media attention, way more than I actually thought would happen. So I found it interesting that he says that he didn't expect the amount of media attention that he got from sending the migrants to Martha's Vineyard. It sort of seems like that would have drawn attention no matter what, right? Yeah, well, didn't they have someone on the ground in Martha's Vineyard who was recording it and then posting it on Twitter and amplifying it? So I think that's a disingenuous Does, does anybody hear that sound and just feel kind of icky? Like, these are, like, look, I, I understand you've got your political agenda, but, like, these are people yeah. who, through no fault of their own, ended up in a strange place that they may or may not have been told they were going to. That investigation is still playing out, but I it it, it just it just kind of struck me as maybe somewhat crass, I guess, to just to, to hear the first thing that he say said was, "Oh, the media attention was great." Right. I was I was yeah. surprised we got we got so much yeah. media attention. Not, you know, had he said, "I'm glad that this elevated the issue that southern bordered states are feeling um, up in the eastern part of the country because this is going to take a countrywide." approach to solving. Had he said that, I would have said, okay, maybe I don't like the the means to an end that you were going for, but yes, you did elevate the conversation to a national level. We obviously are paying more and more attention to it here in Massachusetts, but it just kind of gets to that sense of from the very beginning this was a political Yeah, people ploy. are people are pawns. Mm -hmm. People, you know, people who are traumatized to come into this country um, many of them escaping horrors and then um, just be treated like a political uh, game piece that lands in a, on an island somewhere, which of course some of the people are still there, have been welcomed in the community, it kind of backfired. Uh, we learned a lot about uh, the, the country's perception of Martha's Vineyard, which isn't exactly what, what happened, so there was a lot of angles to this going back in the time machine. But yeah, it's just whenever you're using people as pawns, it's, it's not a good way to think of how will this leader take care of me if I'm ever as a citizen in a position where I need not to be a number. Yeah, yeah. That, that reaction was also shocking to me in the moment. I mean, I brought up, you know, is this was it just a political stunt or did it have the desired effect? And to your point, Corey, I felt like he began down the path that you're describing, but then it's almost like you just can't help yourself. You steer yeah. back into what this was. Hey, look so. at me, look kind of look, look what yeah. I did. Right. Um, but it'll, but it'll be it'll be interesting to see if, if if he you know as we continue to talk about the debate and the people who have kind of ed exited stage left to see if he can actually make some headway mm -hmm. because someone else is is off the stage and I'm, I'm curious to see if he actually does bring it up because I got to think they'll ask about the migrant issue um, you know just with with the funding fight that's going on in, in Washington D.C. right now and border security and wanting more money for the border uh, as well. It'll be, it'll, it'll be interesting to see uh, if it gets brought up, and let's not lose sight of the fact that NBC is going to be hosting this debate, and, and regardless of, of what you think about the, the slant of different media outlets, we know some of the questions are perhaps going to be a, a little bit tougher, um, maybe go in a different direction than you would see on a more conservative Fox mm -hmm. News debate, uh, stuff like that, so it'll be interesting to see, but again, I'm just, I'm happy there aren't that many people on yeah. the stage yeah. anymore. Um, Moment of silence for Mike Pence's presidential yeah, campaign. Yep, Mike Pence. All right, moment of silence over. Uh, I guess. I guess. <laughs> sorry. I mean, I just. I just guess if you're starting from the standpoint of some of the voters I need to vote for me at one point wanted to hang me, 
you're not in a good spot. Or uh, I'm an evangelical that should be a favorite, and in Iowa, the evangelicals, according to the poll, don't really want me to be president. I mean, you know, that's <laughs> to your, there's nowhere for him to go to get votes. And, you know, we're, we're joking about the RIP to his campaign, but this is also a moment of sort of RIP to the traditional Republican. You know, here's a guy who was governor. Here's a guy who was a congressperson. Here's a guy that exemplifies some of the values of the traditional Republican Party, a former vice president of the last president, and he it never happened. And I mean, part of it uh, from voters, Republican voters that I've talked to, is just um, is it, it's sort of like this is going to be a very old reference for both of you, but it was like the last episode of the Mary Tyler Moore Show when Ted Baxter, you know, said, nope. if they're, "Yeah, if they're quitting, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to quit." Nod yeah, you nod Lori. along. You'll nod along. <laughs> if they're quitting, uh, if they're being let go, I'm going to be. I'm going to quit. And he, they go, "Okay." And then he decides, "Well, no, never mind. I'm. I'm going to stay." So it's like when pigs fly, you just should be amazed. So when Mike Pence did the right thing by defending the Constitution, and Pope, people had a moment of like, "There's a backbone." Uh, that apparently is all the backbone he had. Yeah, well, and I think you go back to that moment. I heard from a lot of Democratic voters who said, well, so what? He spent four years before that not having a backbone or not, you know, standing up for the issues that they felt like he should have been. Mm -hmm. So one moment does not absolve him for everything uh, prior to that. And then Republican voters, if you feel like he should have, you know, overturned the results in some form or fashion, you're mad at him for that. So, I mean, he was a candidate without a lane from the very beginning. Did you get that sense when you talked to him in, in New Hampshire that he was, I mean, because we saw the pictures on social media. He's given talks to like six people at an early bird dinner. Yeah, like, I, I, I talked with him twice. The first time was at a senior center with a fairly good crowd, but, you know, then the next day you go to Nikki Haley and you find out what a good crowd really yeah, looks yeah. like. Um, you know, it was quiet, but the people that were there were passionate, and I felt like, well, maybe there's a little bit of traction here. But you, you fast forward three weeks a month to the filing season, and he shows up at the state house and jokes with the media that it may become evident in the days ahead <laughs> that my campaign doesn't have as much money as other campaigns you realize that we're coming to the end of the road here you know this is bonnie and clyde going straight off the cliff and that's what it's going to be so um yeah i was sort of doomed from that point on and to just sort of announce it randomly too and surprise the gasps in the audience yes. when he announced it in las vegas and um a, a reports that is meant some people in the staff didn't even expect i mean it's almost like it just occurred to him yeah. that's a good place to end it right here yeah, yeah i guess in, in for an evangelical in in las vegas right there why not my, my campaign is over in sin city yeah it fits i guess uh, we'll, right. see. we'll see. We'll see. So we've been talking about the, the migrant crisis and, of course, uh, news this week that the court ruled in favor of the Healy administration allowing an emergency cap on the number of migrants that can be sheltered in Massachusetts. There's a wait list, case-by-case -case basis, um, and more Healy announced on Monday that the work authorization clinics will be held next week for the migrants in Massachusetts. Now, the, the group that brought the case, the uh, Lawyers for Civil Rights, uh, they went on to say that they believe uh, that they are going to evaluate next steps for litigation. Um, of course, um, what's happening here is the judge recognized uh, part of, uh, I wouldn't call it a loophole, but uh, a, a part of the law for the uh, right to shelter that said that if the state doesn't have the money to pay for it, for the people being sheltered, they don't have to do it. It was written in the law. It was probably a negotiation when it was done way, 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 way back in the last century. But it turns out that, of course, Healy had put forward a request 
um, for uh, more money from the state legislature, which they did not get. Uh, they've already s approved $325 million, but say that they need $535 million. So the issue, of course, becomes whatever people say, there's no money to shelter these migrants any longer, and there's no federal money to shelter them. Uh, so at some point, if they don't match the requirements of being on the waiting list or the requirements of being able to get in someplace, they're going to be put out on the street. So, you know, this is Massachusetts, a problem that other states have been having for a long time. It's an interesting place for these Democratic lawmakers to be. Yeah, I mean, I think um, not, not necessarily surprised by, by the ruling, again, because there was that, that stipulation as well. If they don't have the money to do it, then they can't do it. Um, that ruling, of course, coming the same week that you saw uh, mayors in Chicago, Los Angeles, and some other cities ask the federal government for $5 billion um, to, to, to take care of the influx of migrants. It's not only the, the, the money to put people up, it's do they have places to right. put them up. Right. Right. Um, and to the work authorization point, which I think is, is a good thing, especially, you know, I remember doing stories just this past summer out on the Cape, on the Vineyard, folks were looking for people to work. Uh, we, we need seasonal workers, we just can't have them. Um, and, and you got to think there are skilled migrants that are coming here who, who can do those sort of jobs. But I also think about, okay, you're giving them work authorizations, and, and she said the point was to, to, to move them out of temporary housing to permanent housing. Well, you have American citizens in Massachusetts who have jobs who can't find affordable right. places to live. So it's just like this amalgamation of the housing crisis with the migrant crisis, and every day goes by, you're just wondering how are they going to be able to solve this problem without any sort of federal intervention. Yeah, I mean, it just stacks on top of itself. And I thought, you know, I mean, you hear Democrats being critical of the Biden administration. It shows you just how dire the situation was becoming, you know. I mean, it's just such a divide between the two parties on how to process something like this. I've talked with most of the GOP candidates about this particular topic, and most of them don't have a whole lot of sympathy because they're like, you shouldn't have had a shelter, a right to shelter law in the first place. So I guess that brings us to the other question is, I mean, should the right to shelter law even be in place in Massachusetts anymore when you're dealing with something like this? Well, you know, the, the, the environment has changed. We can always go back and look at every law we have on the books. I think we still have a law on the books that you can't feed lobster to your servants more than three times a week. You know, we've got a lot of laws on the books here in Massachusetts. But it also goes to the issue of people in the southern states, in the border states, rather, who have been complaining about having to carry this burden of housing and processing um, migrants coming over the border, both legally and undocumented, and, and feeling like the rest of the country was just not getting what a crisis this was. And lawmakers up north saying, well, it's America, they've come over legally, they're asking for asylum, you know, uh, they, we should be able to take care of them, and now here they are in our state. And we're saying, oh, we have this loophole in our law that says that we don't have to take care of them. Do you ever, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Did, did you ever get a sense, because I'm, I'm just thinking back to the governor's debate and the governor campaign, did she really get questions about this? Did, did, did any sort of migrant issue in Massachusetts ever come up on the campaign trail where she said that this is what I would do? I, I can't for the life of me remember us even having, honestly, a conversation about migrants in Massachusetts. We have talked about immigration, we have talked about homelessness, we have talked about the housing crisis, but, um, you know, to probably DeSantis's point, 
this is, they have driven the point home that this is not just a problem of the southern border, it's now a national problem. And uh, interestingly, putting the heat on Democratic mayors and governors in the Northeast to put the heat on the Biden administration, acknowledging that this is a problem for Congress for, as you pointed out on the show uh, on at issue uh, last week, Matt, of decades of inaction by Congress, both Republicans and Democrats. But now this is where, you know, no matter where you go, here you are, here we are. We have migrants in the state. We can't afford to put them anywhere, just like which has been happening in Texas and Arizona and all along the border. Is this what Congress has always needed in a way to have every state involved, to have the whole nation involved so that it's a priority enough to get something done? I, I think it is. I mean, it's it's similar to me in a way to the, the crisis that Greece has been going through with the European Union, not to go totally afar here. But, you know, Greece is also concerned right now about what what's going to happen to the Palestinians leaving Gaza, you know, and um, if they don't go to Egypt, uh, are they going to go and take a boat and end up in Greece trying to get into the European Union like the Syrian refugees have done? And Greece has been saying this is not just a Greek problem, this is a European Union problem, and it's an international problem. So I think, again, not to get completely um, out, of, out of space on this, but as the climate changes, as these crises continue to be uh, an issue, it's, there's going to have to be a global response to migrants, period, regardless of where they're coming from and where they're going. And just think about it, the immigration, uh, the attempts to overhaul American immigra America's immigration system, some, some would argue never ever got close, but the work was being done. Um, think about the GOP of then compared to the GOP of now yeah. and how much more difficult it will more than likely be to get comprehensive immigration reform. I think we'll always have the the questions over 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 amnesty and, and the dreamers, but you've got a GOP who is now even more dug in, uh, an America First GOP, if you will, right. um, who is just saying we, we've we've got to we've got to close the border, um, and and then let the chips fall, you know, where they may. I, it, it just it seems to me like it's 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 going to be a problem, especially in an election year that's not going to mm -hmm. get solved. Yeah. Um, but even moving forward, I mean, you could have a supermajority of Democrats or Republicans in the in all three branches of or the legislative and and Congress, but and the executive, but still not get the problem. Yeah, I mean, it's like if you can't agree on Israel or Ukraine or spending bills, these sort of things, how are you going to get through a contentious issue like immigration? It just doesn't seem possible right now. But I always try to remind people, and maybe this is the silver lining of it all, is like the country's gone through polarized times mm -hmm. in the past, and we found our way back. This will just have to be another right. one of those times, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and you know, the, 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 the practical person, the practical progressive in me says, look, we have an, um, a, a dropping birth rate in this country not you guys, but other people. Dropping birth rate <laughs> doing in this, you're doing your part. <laughs> Thank you, America thanks yeah. you. We have a dropping birth rate in this country. We have had a drop in uh, immigration in this country. Uh, and we have all these jobs that we have. So we could look at this problem as a solution uh, to the Governor Healy's um, talk about getting job permits and moving people, finding a way. You know, people always say they should just get in line and get, you know, their citizenship. There is no line. We, it's a, it, that, that's a fallacy. If we could agree in Congress to find a pathway for people who come here, 
quickly um, manage their asylum claims and make them citizens quickly, uh, then we would actually probably have a more robust economy in a more robust country rather than trying to fight who's going to pay for this and who's going to put them there. And again, it's also about do we care about them as human beings? Yeah. You know, do we care about these people? You know, do you think that God had you born here in Massachusetts or wherever you were born yeah. because you were a good person in a prior life and those people were born there? Or was it just a, you know, a, an accident of birth, mm. right? And if it's an accident of birth, then, you know, I guess we should probably try to think about how we can care about the humans and the human cost that is here and find a way to share the responsibility. Yeah. All right, we'll see what happens. I'll have that done by the end of the week. Yeah, yeah good. thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, that is going to do it for this week. We appreciate you all joining us yet again. Of course, you can uh, see us this Sunday morning at 1130 right after Meet the Press on NBC10 Boston's At Issue. Matt's got a preview of a big city council race coming up uh, on Tuesday. And we're also uh, speaking with Michael Curry, Liz Miranda about a health care bill and the Ways and Means Chair as well about some, some taxation. Yeah, very exciting. Very All sexy. Right. It is. Very, very, very sexy. <laughs> for Sue, for Matt, I'm Corey. Thank you once again for joining us here on Taking Issue. We'll talk to you next week. Like and follow us.